facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Since I started doing research for and sharing on social about this topic, I've gotten approximately a bajillion ads and as many comments on the topic. So I want to make a couple of things abundantly clear. Number one, no one is a bad person for encouraging others or wanting to lose weight themselves. Oprah is someone I personally look up to and yet I can see that she is sucked into diet culture and financially benefits from weight loss. Weight Watchers, WW, now Sequence, has jumped 23% in their subscribers with shares boosting 60% since taking on injectable medicine. And I like Oprah. And like many people, I believe they are genuinely trying to help others without the realization that it is a greater harm to health than being fat itself and a system of oppression. Secondly, no diets have been shown to work long term. And by that, I mean body size or other metrics of health. On a prior episode, we discussed the Minnesota starvation diet and how healthy men began to break down emotionally and physically during caloric deprivation. There is significant research showing that 95 to 98% of those who try to lose weight will gain it all back, most often quickly, but the rest will regain more slowly within two to five years. And 30% of those put the weight back on plus more than they lost, which means people are usually worse off health-wise from losing muscle mass during the weight loss process, but only adding back fat because that's how our body knows to protect itself during starvation. Which leads me to three, because while we focus this show on how the weight loss injectables work in the body as well as the risks of them, it's also a personal choice if it's right for you. But please work with a medical professional. I would want someone to be checking my hormones, nutritional deficiencies, blood sugar, and a whole lot more. Because as we will discuss, the risks are quite high and it functions by modifying hormones. So whether a celebrity you admire or an influencer you follow or a neighbor down the street is losing weight, it might not be right for you. We talk a lot about other health activities and lifestyle factors here on the show with intention because eating more vegetables and adding omega-3s to your life is shown to benefit your health, as is sleeping more or finding a joyful movement and meditating. Injectable medication, however, likely isn't a long-term sustainable lifestyle for you. I have been leaning into those reminders myself when I see the ads and the different people who I follow participating in activities that don't align with what I really want for myself long-term. And I am alarmed from the dangerous compound pharmacy advertisements that I have been getting because they are selling who knows what formula of semi-glutides and the people are smiling and happy. You have, first of all, you have absolutely no idea what is in those products and certainly they aren't FDA approved. But also those ads aren't showing you that the people are potentially sick. Um, for example, Amy Schumer talked about how she was too sick 
to even play with her own children, let alone the people who are now starting to report their hospitalizations or other bad experiences. That said, there is a lot to get into for this bonus show. So let's jump in. Welcome to a bonus show of Behold You. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I am here each week to help us dive deeper in how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. This week, we have a little bit of a bonus show because I cannot get weight loss injection ads or have you been injured ads or celebrity news stories out of my social media feeds. And as the show is an outlet for me to educate myself and I wanted to prioritize getting some information out to you listeners as I was researching myself. And I'm excited that Kathleen Meehan is back with us to talk about this. She is a registered dietitian. But before we get started, a reminder that this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. Specifically, in addition, this bonus episode will contain discussion of weight loss, disordered eating, and other societal beliefs about larger bodies that may feel triggering. So please protect yourself as needed. I mentioned, and I will tell you, I will never forget the first time that I got an ad that was like, have you been harmed by weight loss injection drugs on IG? And it, I was like, what? Because first social media was pushing me to try it. And then I was getting these ads after I told them, please mute that stuff. I don't want to see it asking me if my stomach had been paralyzed. And I was like, holy moly, what is happening? So in looking into the research, I anticipated that there would be blood sugar dysregulation and negative outcomes potential in addition to the good that it can do as a medicine that it is designed to do. But I wasn't prepared for everything that has been fully revealed as I started researching and as celebrities have come forward talking about their hospitalizations or other things. And so I don't think anything really prepared me for all of the research that I dove into. And I know Kathleen has some really great perspectives and opinions to dive into because the more that I look, the more I'm realizing like the risks are not being communicated to people. And my goal on the show is always to help people make informed and educated decisions for themselves. And oftentimes when you hear a one-sided version of a success story, right, like a before and after or whatever, we confuse and conflate what that journey looked like for them as to what it might look like for us and not really seeing a full picture or confusing that that person is healthy because they might be losing weight. Um, whereas oftentimes people can lose weight because they're actually sick. So there are a lot of things that come into the picture. And I know Kathleen does an amazing job of educating from a full perspective on all of this. And so as we navigate what is now this weird post-COVID, we had this like self-love parade, I feel like. And then our culture went into this boomerang from being anti-diet and understanding what all of that meant to now being in seemingly a weight loss craze because on TikTok, people are talking about legging legs and different kinds of things. And they're like, whoa, what is happening? 
And I think it just showcases like the toxicity of how quickly our culture can jump into pushing us in one direction or another instead of just feeling firmly grounded in ourselves and truly understanding our own health and wellness without all of that noise and distraction and confusion. So if you're baffled, super curious, all the things, I'm excited to dive into it with prior beloved guest, Kathleen Meehan. Welcome back to the show. And listeners, if you're not familiar, definitely check out episode 42, where we dove into Noom as claiming that it is not a weight loss show. And I think it'll give you a good perspective on um, Kathleen and her beliefs and how she approaches things. But for listeners that aren't familiar with you, maybe you can introduce yourself. I would love to. Thanks for having me. And you're reminding me, I think Noom even is now partnering yes. with some of these medications. So it's Yes, they are. Kind of There's all, many yeah. places that are partnering with these medications. Right, so, right. Yes. So thanks for having me. I am a registered dietitian. It is my training, my background. I always share the the caveat that I wasn't trained with the perspective that I have now, as are very few of my colleagues. But I work through a weight-inclusive lens, and it's really important to me to help people try and simplify nutrition and explore the nuance that will help lead to a healthier relationship with food. I really believe in the importance of pleasure and satisfaction. And I also recognize there's a lot of limitations to having pleasurable and satisfying experiences with food. And my hope is to just help people find more ease with eating and giving lots of awareness to the fact that's really hard to do and sometimes easier said than done. So my approach has I work a lot with eating disorders as a result of this approach and disordered eating. And I take dietitians are trained in medical nutrition therapy, meaning if a person has a certain condition, what are the nutritional interventions that can help support them during that time? That's a, an area that's really riddled with weight stigma, unfortunately. And so trying to still maintain some of that support without providing stigmatizing care is really important to me. So yeah, it's interesting because I think some of the things that we'll be talking about today as it relates to these medications were part of my awakening as a dietitian with thin privilege in terms of recognizing the struggles that many of the people I was working with were having and that the way it was all taught to me is not how it actually works in the real world. So yeah, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I could listen to you talk on this all the time. (laughs) And I want to direct listeners if you are already like, Kathleen, your voice, your perspective is something I need more of in my life. You can definitely go to her website, KathleenMehandRD.com and then the RD Nutritionist on IG. And we'll put TikTok, all of the links and everything in show notes for you, where we also have about a bajillion references from this show. I did about as many hours as there are references of hours of research on this show because I truly, this is not an area of expertise for me. This is not something I'm familiar with, but I wanted to fully understand. So I've done everything from like watching a webinar from a medical doctor to reading all of the studies that are available. Like I I have done everything that I could possibly do 
to be educated, to share with you listeners, to understand about how it works, mechanisms in the body, what it was originally designed for, and then also what are some of the risks with using it in a different way for weight loss versus type 2 diabetes. That said, I think maybe one of the areas, well, actually, something that you said, Kathleen, that I wanted to like circle back on and close the loop before we dive into everything is how you now work a lot on a weight inclusivity size side. That's a tongue-in-cheek, a weight inclusivity size with people who have eating disorders or disordered eating. And one of the first kind of like red flags for me about some of the information that was coming out in culture was that these injectable medications were being recommended for teens by the AAP as something that could help them lose weight and weight loss surgery and all of the kind of things that are pointing people to a direction of weight loss for children is a smart idea. And I'm wondering if you can just really briefly, before we jump into everything, share a little bit about how we see in the research that children who are, I don't want to say pushed into dieting, but most children are not actively on their own being like, hey, I'd like to lose weight, right? Like if a child is dieting, how that increases the likelihood for disordered eating and obesity in adulthood. Yeah, so I would say that nearly every person that I see in my private practice has some sort of dieting history from adolescence or even younger. And typically, you're right, it is because there is some external stigma placed upon them by even well-intended people, even very well-intended parents often feel concerned about their children and their bodies and put them in a place where they're encouraging restriction and discouraging that internal connection that we often have. So I I think that's supported by the research too, where we see that childhood dieting is very much associated with disordered eating and weight gain throughout the years. Yeah, it's just, it struck me when you were talking about who you work with now and being someone who went to fat camp as a middle schooler, right? It's like when I think about my journey with the struggle that I've had, and I think a lot of people have had, whether it's a significant amount of weight or they struggle with 10 to 20 pounds and the guilt and shame associated with that or whatever it is, I think many of us think about an option like a medicine as being a good idea. And I think that when you're working with a medical practitioner and you're understanding everything about that choice, it is certainly for someone to make. And what was interesting to me was looking at what the medication was made for. So the semi-glutide is the ingredient of medications that people might have heard of, like Ozempic, Wigovi, and Ribels? Ribels? Rebelsis. Rebelsis? Okay. Rebel. You're rebelling. Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't, anyway, it's not spelled like that, but okay. And that ingredient has been on the market for 15 years for type 2 diabetes. And it was created and works within the body very specifically for that purpose. But the recent medications and the use for weight loss 
not just have changed from the use that it's for, but also have changed doses. And now it's being used what is called off-label for weight loss. And so there isn't 15 years worth of research to show us how long, if someone is using this for weight loss, what does that look like in their body long term? And so I think we have a lot to say on that and in the research that we can see from the last two years, and we'll dive into all of that. But I wanted to first start with the science on how this works, because it's really important to understand the mechanism of like why the specific medicine that is for type 2 diabetes, but is not for type 1, like why does that work and why is the mechanism causing people to lose weight when they take this medication without type 2 diabetes? So basically, these drugs, to, to really simplify things, are mimicking hormones in the body. And these hormones are secreted in response to meals, to eating. And what the research has shown, what we know, is that people with type 2 diabetes have a decreased production of these hormones at baseline. So it's been really supportive to then add them back in for those folks who are struggling with blood sugar control related to their diabetes. And I'm going to speak to the type 2 diabetes piece first, and then we can tie in the type 1. And I will say that all dietitians are, are trained in this area, but I'm not a diabetes specialist. That's additional training that I don't have. So this is like a bird's eye view, basically. But there's a few different ways that they work. They slow down stomach emptying, which is really important to consider because it helps that insulin do its job, basically, and allows the digestion of glucose to happen more slowly, which means we see fewer spikes in blood sugar. And they reduce glucagon secretion, which glucagon basically tells the liver that the body needs more blood sugar. The body needs more sugar in your bloodstream. So if it's been a while since you've eaten, your body can help regulate blood sugar levels by introducing more glucose into the bloodstream, which can technically raise blood sugar levels and would maybe not be ideal in some scenarios if a person is struggling with blood sugar levels. They also increase insulin that is released from the pancreas. So a person with type 2 diabetes still has the ability to produce some of their own insulin. And so these drugs can help increase that production essentially. So that's type two. Before we move to type one, could you yes. briefly tell why our bodies need blood sugar and insulin? Because I think sometimes those words can be like four letter words. Even mean. <laughs> right, right. So the way that I explain it is blood sugar is not a bad thing by any means. It's a really important and really necessary because sh sugar and glucose are interchangeable. But glucose is the end of the road in terms of metabolism in some ways, and it's how our bodies use fuel for energy. So it's how our bodies break down food for energy. And so it's really important for all the different cells in our bodies, our brains being moving our bodies, thinking, all, everything requires glucose in some way. So the ability to turn food into glucose is 
essential. And part of what type 2 diabetes is or diabetes in general is that there's challenges that arise in that process. So it's hard for a person to get access to the blood sugar the way that we would hope happens just naturally. And insulin is part of that process. So our bodies, unless you have a condition that prevents your body from doing this, our bodies produce insulin and insulin helps us with blood sugar. Insulin helps us with that process of turning the sugar from food into fuel for our bodies. So if you have an issue with insulin, you have an issue with that process. And you mentioned that the drug increases insulin. Isn't there already too much insulin in someone that has type 2 diabetes? Is it creating like the body's ability to absorb the insulin better, like to go into the cells correctly? Or like, what is that mechanism? Good, good question. So you're right. Insulin resistance is sometimes when the body is not able to use the insulin that you are producing. And so you just produce more and more. And that's why some folks may have had insulin levels tested and see that their insulin is high. That's indicating that something is going amiss with the insulin production. But insulin is also valuable for a person with blood sugar concerns because insulin helps remove the sugar, the glucose from your blood and take it into your cells. So if a person is struggling with high blood sugar, the levels of sugar are too high in their blood, insulin being introduced into the scenario can help almost like clear the hallway. So it's, yes, it's, it's sweet. It's like sweeping it, but also into our cells so that we can use right, it. Sitting right. Sitting in our blood being toxic for us. Right. The analogy that it's often used is that insulin helps open the door, essentially. So insulin helps open the door to bring the sugar into your cells. So it's a good thing. And it's very helpful for folks who have blood sugar concerns. And then it, it wouldn't work for type 1 because you exactly. can't make insulin at all, right? Exactly. So with type 1, part of the disease is that there's an autoimmune attack on the cells that are responsible for helping you manage blood sugar. And so these GLP-1 hormones cannot do their jobs without those cells in the pancreas. And so this is my understanding because I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, basically, but they do actually use these GLP-1 drugs. Originally, these drugs are not used because there were some concerns about hypoglycemia for folks with type 1 if they were to use them. And not necessarily because there were, there's any issue with insulin, or sorry, not because this drug directly causes hypoglycemia, but because you require less insulin if you take it. And people were still not getting the insulin dosing right and struggling with low blood sugars, which is very dangerous for everyone, but especially a person who's more sensitive when they have type 1. But people are using these drugs off-label either for weight loss or to reduce their the insulin that they require if they have type 1, interestingly enough. And I think it is in part because of the other mechanisms of the drug where they slow stomach emptying and things like that impact 
the quote unquote success there. It's not related to the insulin mechanism because that's not feasible for someone with type one. It's definitely interesting to me to hear the discussion about like type one and type two and immediately my brain goes to what I'll call the elephant in the room, which I think we all have this ingrained. I know I do. And I work to unravel this cultural belief that type two diabetes, that people in larger bodies have some sort of lack of self-control or it, they have caused their own disease and now have gotten what they deserve. And that is really hard for me, even as someone as educated as I am, and I know about that, I hear you talk about the difference and I'm like, well, yeah, poor, those poor type one people. And I don't have the same empathy and compassion for someone with type two diabetes. And it's interesting for me to think about it too, because as someone who has low leptin, that is, I've had my hormones reviewed. I've done epigenetic testing. It is in my DNA. It is not a cause of um, my own willpower or a choice that I've made. Like I know that my body does not have the same ability as someone else to tell me when I'm full. Like I have to remember that there are a lot of mechanisms in everybody's bodies and those that end up with type 2 diabetes or in a larger body that shame and guilt and cultural belief that we all have drive us to make decisions that we might otherwise not be making because we are conflating health with weight. And it seems to me that conversation is one that needs to be had before we like dive into the science of do these medications even work long term? What does that look like? What are the risks and whatever? I think part of this is we need to all reconcile in our own head if we're considering this medication or if we check this medication both because maybe we have type 2 diabetes or because we want to lose weight. What does that ultimately look like for our cultural beliefs? And I know that this is a passion of yours, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about both how you approach it in your practice, but are seeing in the community. Well, I think that there's really important discourse happening around bodily autonomy. And in many ways, that is stemming from the, well, that's actually always been a tenant of the fat activism movement in general, but it's coming up as it relates to these drugs where I think, especially for providers like myself who live in smaller bodies and have never had this lived experience, it's really challenging for a person to not be intrigued, I think, by what these drugs are promising and especially the discourse around them. And especially, I know that there are influencers that live in larger bodies that are literally being approached to take these drugs and utilize them and, and share their experiences because there are people who have been offered to do that who have said, I'm not going to be doing that. And so I think my hope in that having these conversations is that people don't feel shame if they have an interest in taking these drugs or have taken them or are taking them. And I know that is actually that has been an unfortunate impact over intent that has happened in having these conversations where we are talking about the negative side effects, especially when it's coming from someone who doesn't have a lived experience. 
So I'm really sensitive to that. And you're right, there there is always a stigma associated with type 2 diabetes, whether it's pre-diabetes or elevated blood sugars or insulin resistance, where there is an implication that the person, quote unquote, did this to themselves versus the less stigmatized condition, type 1 diabetes, where it's viewed very differently. And that's because it doesn't usually have. So I just, I, I think, I don't know if that's answering your question in any way, yeah, but I, it's a delicate subject. It's super helpful. And I appreciate the reflection of not having that lived experience. And I think it's why I wanted to do this show with you, with someone who has medical experience, but also because I want to openly say, like, I have been curious about this and had thoughts in my head, like, oh, this is something I should do. And it's part of why I wanted to research it. I don't want to be drawn to something that is only going to help me lose weight because I know that weight isn't the same as getting healthier. So I'm curious when I'm looking at the um, studies and the long-term outcomes and all of these things, like I think it's important. A question that I ask myself that I would encourage others to ask is, will this improve my health long-term if that's the goal? If the goal truly is just to be thinner for aesthetic purposes, just like you have a choice to get plastic surgery and different kind of choices, which will actually, it's part of the conversation that we're going to have, that is your body autonomy and that is your choice to do. I think that it's important to fully understand the implications of that choice, which until I fully done this research, I was not aware of all of these things. And so it's part of what I, why I wouldn't have this conversation, because for me, if I look at something and I'm like, oh, if I ever stop taking this medication, my weight will rebound. And in fact, it appears that in about five years, the weight will come back on even if I'm on the medication, which we don't fully have the research for that. We'll talk about it because they haven't been used for weight loss for five years. And my baseline health outcome meaning any sort of health benefits that I would have gotten from the medication, go back to baseline, what am I really taking this medication for? And that helps me make a better informed decision versus like I am seeing influencers who I follow who are plus size fashion influencers and PD bloggers because I follow a bunch of them who are now in much smaller bodies. And that influences my thought process for sure, right? Like it makes me feel like oh, how come everybody is losing weight? I should lose weight. And I think that that lived experience of I have lost and gained hundreds of pounds in my life. I know what it feels like to be in a thinner body. And when that experience happened, instead of being able to fully enjoy that experience, what it reminded me of was all the shame and trauma of being in a larger body, right? Like it made me realize, oh, people don't look me in the eyes. People don't hold the door for me. People don't talk to me. People feel uncomfortable when I'm eating around them. Like all of these things became more apparent when I was in a thinner body and not experiencing those things. And so if you haven't had that experience, it's hard to fully understand. Or if you are experiencing that in a larger body and have lost weight previously, because most of us have been on a roller coaster our whole lives trying to be in a thinner body, doing everything that we can to do that, then it's like, oh, if I take this medication, then I can go back to that place where things felt safe, where things felt better, so to speak. 
And it is a journey for me to now like reframe in my mind. The thing that really matters for me is being healthy. I don't, I need to let go of, and I don't care anymore about making someone else feel uncomfortable at a restaurant. Or if someone doesn't look me in the eyes, that's on them, that's not on me, right? Like these are conversations that I'm having with myself. And that's harder than just taking medication to fix the problem. Like I get that. I get the desire and how difficult that is. Yeah, it's really complex. And I think we just have to hold a lot of space and consideration for that as we have these conversations. And one thing that I've tried to really take away is that it's not so black and white. It's not these are bad. These are good. It's it's way more complex than that. And so I think especially I've even had folks who have been taking these medications for their diabetes and they feel like they've been in the fat positive space and they're hearing this discourse around how quote unquote bad these drugs are. And they're like, well, should I not be taking them? And there's just so many layers to that, like these drugs may be valuable. These may, these drugs may be really harmful for some people. The marketing associated with these drugs is very much steeped in weight bias and weight stigma and cannot be un and so a pretty nuanced topic (laughs) and i feel for the people who are taking it for the purpose that it was designed type 2 diabetes for years and years that now it's impossible to get right like it's very that's also hard for me it's it reminds me of like during the pandemic when we were all saying like save the good masks for the doctors right like they're like the medical professionals need the good masks and it's almost like I hope that medical professionals can prioritize giving the medication to the people whose bodies benefit the most from taking it. So I'm not the real housewives, you mean? I think I saw like one celebrity story where someone was hospitalized and they were like, and then I went back on the drug and I don't regret taking it. And I was like, okay, like that is your informed choice. But also, wow, that's that says a lot about how much society wants people to be thin if someone is right. willing to experience that and still want to continue taking the medications. Right. Let's talk about does it actually work? And we're not going to be talking about if it works for type 2 diabetes because that has been long established in the medical literature and studies. It there are side effects of weight loss. And in fact, what what I was seeing for people who have been on it a long time, that actually like goes back to baseline for people, but it continues to help with blood sugar regulation long-term. And that is what it is intended for. And so we're just going to put that in a little box off to the side because that's not what we're talking about today. So when we look at what studies are available for modern day use as off-label weight loss, There's only like two years worth of data, less than 10 studies. And I want to talk about a few of that. The first is a 2021 published study that looked at people who were on semaglutide 2.4 milligrams. It's a weekly dose. So some of the medications are daily and some of the medications are weekly and the dosage is different. For consideration, the type 2 diabetic dosage is usually 0.5 milligrams. So we're talking about five times the quote-unquote normal dose to achieve the weight loss in this study. And 
in this study, looking at people's weight baseline over 68 weeks, they saw 15% weight loss versus 2.4% in the placebo, placebo group. That is 15% weight loss is a huge amount of weight loss to see and definitely would be a success, right, in the check mark of success. Now, I also want to say that these studies all required that people be in a caloric deficit. So I'm going to call that a starvation diet because that's what it is. And we'll talk about the starvation experiment and what we learned from that a little bit later. But they were required to be physically active, to be in a caloric deficit and to take the medication to receive those results. And I would also call out that they did receive improvement in cardio metabolic risk factors as a result of taking this medication and losing weight when compared to people on the placebo. Do you have anything you want to add to that before I talk about the other studies? I want to plug Reagan Chastain because I've learned a lot from the Substack that they send out. It's been very helpful. And if this is all like so much, so many numbers, I feel like that is a good place to go review. But I I also think I'm thinking about Aubrey Gordon of Your Fat Friend, who has talked about this on her podcast. And one thing that she said is that, yes, while for the research, 15% weight loss is like very significant because we in weight-centric spaces often say that even 3 to 5% is considered significant in weight-centric spaces. Aubrey has said, like, she's like, that wouldn't change my life that meaningfully like that is considered amazing success for what the research shows but in terms of experiencing stigma on a day-to-day basis she said people are still going to look at me I'm still going to be experiencing stigma and so I think that's context that can be helpful too like everyone is you know that's it's a personal thing relative it's relative to your body size for sure right and Um, I haven't actually listened to the maintenance phase episode on this because I try not to be influenced, but I love Aubrey's work and I appreciate you calling that out and we'll add a link in the show notes to it. I'm looking forward to listening to it after the show. Um, And I also want to say that I had this experience just today. I went to the doctor's office and there was an ad for weight loss injectables. It didn't say weight loss injectables. That it, it just said the the brand name of one of the medications in the far right corner, very small. And that's how I knew what it was. But the poster was about maintaining your weight. And they plugged 10% as being the, it's considered the magic number of like, if you can lose 10% of your body weight, then you may experience positive outcomes was what they said. And previously it was always, you will improve your outcomes. So I appreciate that now, like the science is finally starting to catch up and people are caveating a little bit because 10% to one person versus another. And I thought that what was fascinating about the poster is that it talked about weight maintenance and it said weight loss isn't the hard part it's maintaining weight that's the hard part weight comes back because of hormones in our bodies and um our our fat cells wanting to refill and all this stuff that we've talked about on the show countless times where we know that your body is basically thinking that it's starved and it's going to do everything that it can to get back to homeostasis and so the medication poster was more like talk to your doctor about maintaining your weight 
And I like lost my mind when I saw that poster because I had just done all the research. And I know that what the research says is that people are not maintaining their weight on this medication. So when we looked at 2022 study of people who did follow-up appointments, so they had either 1.7 milligram or 2.4 milligram weekly doses, the final line of that study was studies with longer periods of follow-up are needed to evaluate prolonged weight loss outcomes. That was the most that they were willing to admit to. And the studies, all of them cut off right at the two-year mark when weight started to boomerang. So if you can imagine, we'll put a, a graphic in the show notes, but we started to see changes, right? And I want to talk about that. But I just, I was fascinated to be looking at this poster where a doctor could prescribe me this medication. I class, I totally qualify for this medication. And it was being sold as something that is not supported by the research or the science. And that I think is really sad because somebody would look at that poster and be like, yes, this is a concern of mine. I want to handle that. And that is not what the study was showing. And it was interesting to then look also at another one where I talked about, it was a 2022 study. Okay. So the systematic review looked at almost 5,000 patients who had been in any sort of study on this at all. And ultimately what was articulated was that results were stable and reliable with dose dependence. And in some of those studies, not only did you need to stay on this medication to maintain results, but oftentimes doses needed to increase. And like I mentioned earlier, we do not have long-term science on a higher dosage because what it had been originally prescribed for was at a much lower dosage than what people are needing to maintain. If you start to regain weight, then you could talk to your doctor, oh, I need more. And at what point does that become problematic. So it's interesting to me when I think about needing to be on a drug for the rest of my life is how that benefits the person selling the medication. Not only how is my health harmed, but like how expensive is this going to be? And am I going to need to do this for the rest of my life? Is that something I really want to do to maintain the result? But I was fascinated to see that of the articles and the research that I'm in PubMed, by the way, this is not just like on Vanity Fair or whatever. Two articles and studies came up that were talking about the concerns of how the rapid weight loss associated with the semi-glutide medication was causing people to have what is called ozempic face. And that is where the facial volume and fat are depleted in the face because of rapid weight loss. And it's described as causing wrinkles and sagging in the skin. And the concern is that we need to counsel providers and plastic surgeons on how to manage facial changes associated with rapid weight loss. And it was suggested that dermal fillers, skin tightening techniques, and surgical interventions are useful for both restoration of facial volume and to manage the skin. And so to me, I'm like, oh, so now here's this other thing that you need to be aesthetically pleasing for society. Again, we're still not talking about health, right? Like the whole idea is we're going to sell you on weight loss because that's going to make you healthy. 
but now you're on this medication for the rest of your life to maintain results and you have to increase your dosage. And we want you to feel guilty about the way that you look having lost weight. So you need to get filler and skin tightening as well. <laughs> the shame cycle never stops. It's so interesting because I, when this first like Ozempic face first started to like hit the scene sometime last year, I remember I was, I made a TikTok or whatever that people did not like where I was acknowledging that when you still work in a hospital and diagnose malnutrition, there's a number of different ways, a number of different criteria to diagnose malnutrition. But I think it's a huge area of weight stigma because very rarely is malnutrition recognized in the population in the way it should be because so many people qualify for malnutrition. And some of the criteria that can you can use are based on physical findings, including fat wasting in the face. And so I was like, like fillers aside, can we call it a spade that like Ozempic face, quote unquote, is the same thing in some ways as what we would diagnose as malnutrition in the hospital? Like it, it's just the twilight zone in some ways. And so that's my stance on that. It's, yeah. And I think okay. yeah, when I, I'm thinking about this, I'm like, are people being told to work with a practitioner like yourself to ensure that they're getting their nutritional needs met if they are consuming less quantities of food. Like I know that's part of weight loss surgery is working with and planning for and understanding nutritional needs because you're going to have a smaller um, ability to digest foods. We want to make sure that you are getting your nutritional needs met, which is still very seldom achieved and people are lose hair and that kind of stuff from the process. But it's interesting to me that when I was researching in PubMed on this, that there were two articles talking about making sure the providers being both plastic surgery community and a separate one about dermatologists are positioned to counsel patients receiving GLP-1 to recommend appropriate countermeasures and I just like are you kidding me like this is not about health like let's do this like red flag I was going to say the irony is and again this is me basing this off of the research we have for type 2 diabetes but the irony is some of the health benefits that are seen when someone takes this for type 2 diabetes occur independent of weight loss and so you know what does that mean to counsel someone with appropriate countermeasures. Because for me, it's like, well, if we're trying to maintain the fat pads in your face, I would think we need to avoid malnutrition and undernutrition and eat adequately and eat enough, which also may impact your weight. And so for all the other claims out there around cardiovascular health and things like that, those things could still be potentially experienced, but a person doesn't see weight loss, but we're selling this drug for weight loss it's a fail. It, it, it's really, there's some logical fallacies here. Absolutely. And I can see how someone who has a history of disordered eating or especially orthorexia would be in this really weird shame cycle, do loop, whatever it is, right? Where it is really hard to overcome those things when even medical practitioners and PubMed can't pull apart 
fully like these ideas and how to apply them to one's health optimization. And that might mean living in a larger body for some people. And that's a hard one. Yeah, I work with a lot of folks who are in from a stage of change model where we call kind of contemplation for the weight inclusive approach, meaning that they may have experienced weight concerns and struggles with their weight because of society their entire lives and are trying to move away from that and that they're intrigued by a weight inclusive approach, but still feel lots of the societal pressure, what have you. And We sit in the nuance of that contemplation. What would it mean to do this? What would it mean to do this? And I find I I have had a lot of clients who then also bring those concerns to their physicians and end up trying these drugs because the physician says, well, there's a solution to that sort of strife that you've been experiencing. And here it is. And I think there's very little screening for disordered eating habits or orthorexia or atypical anorexia, which is a misnomer, as we know. But in, in many ways, that's my concern is that while the side effects do lessen over time for many people, that is true. Um, the intended outcome is also disordered eating in many ways. And we don't know, you know, when I talk to people who are advocates for these medications, my, my number one thing is like, what do we know about this long-term impact of malnutrition and how will it play out in the long run? How will the sarcopenia, the muscle wasting play out in the long run? We just don't know. Yeah. And I think that's a really great point and brings us to, okay, If someone decides to go on this medication, they see short-term results. They've just now had, you know, 15% body weight loss. They were already not obese to begin with. Like we can think about multiple celebrities doing this and that kind of stuff. They have a zempic phase. They've gotten filler. And now they're thinking about tapering off because there's a lot of people, Sharon Osborne, who talks about she lost too much weight on the medication, right? Like, okay, now I'm going to come off the medication. What does the science say about how it works long-term and coming off of it? So the longest, as I mentioned, studies that we have are two years. So this 2022 publication looked at the two-year effects of the GLP-1 medications in adults who were overweight or obese and specifically took it for weight loss. And I listened to a webinar by Dr. Um, Asher Larmy, who is a weight-inclusive physician in the UK, and their assessment of the final analysis of this was interesting to me because while I'm looking at the graph that's provided and I can see that people start to taper up at that two-year mark, Dr. Asher said they uh, marked it out on their own, like, okay, if we saw the same steady increase that's shown um, at the two-year mark, At five years, all of the people would be at 100% back to their original baseline weight. And the study ended at two years, right? We started to see that the spike started to go up and it's cut off and the study did not continue. It's not like, because here we could say 2023, they continued and there's a three-year study. There's not, there's, it, it does not exist. We can't report because the study ended because it was 
funded by the people who wanted to see the results of the drug, sadly. And hopefully there are other studies that are being done, but this particular one, which was like a five-step trial showing each phase, was like, oh, and now we're done because we start to see this boomerang effect of people putting back on the weight. And that's even if they're in a caloric deficit, even if they're increasing their dosage, eventually the body figures out how to go back to homeostasis. It does not want to do this. Yeah, I think. (laughs) This is sad. (laughs) I understand how they came to that conclusion because I it, it does appear that things are going back and we're basing that assessment on the other data we have as well in terms of the very little long-term weight loss research we have. I think t- nine or 10 years is the maximum amount of time that we have, but we see a very similar sort of graph, not to the degree of weight, not the degree of weight loss we see with these drugs, but still like we see that with time, the body does what it can to bring you back to homeostasis. Yeah. And it was also validated by a different study that looked specifically at the baseline of the weight and cardiometric effects after withdrawal. So this is where we're looking solely at people who have come off of the medication and it was a follow-up to that 68-week study. So originally that was the one where we talked about people seeing 15% improvement and cardiometabolic improvement. And now we're seeing, okay, they've gone through the treatment, they've hit whatever goals they wanted to hit or whatever it was they were trying to achieve. And now they're coming off the medication. What do we see? Unsurprisingly, after looking at this, we start to see that people are gaining the weight back. And in fact, Dr. Asher was like comparing it to prior studies in other ways that you end weight loss, like you end a diet and how quickly it comes back on. This is much, much faster in many cases. And what was also interesting is that there were returns to baseline from the cardiometabolic effect and not just the weight. And so that tells me like the health improvements that one might expect to see were not being achieved either. It wasn't just weight loss. And I was sad to see that there was also some reports. It wasn't fully studied. And basically the article that I was reading was saying this needs to be looked into further, but there were multiple cases of associated depression from going on the medication where people were reporting that with no prior history, nothing to indicate or expect this, that they had recurrent depressive disorder set about one month into starting the medication. And then they would come off of the medication and it would cease to occur. So now they were starting to feel better once they were off the medication. And I think for me, this is really surprising. It's sad, but it isn't surprising because of what we know about the brain's essential metabolic fuel requirements that we know that it loves glucose. And so I was wondering, Kathleen, if you can share a little bit about how our brain utilizes sugars and affects mental health as much as it's also affecting, we talked about earlier, physical health. I I think mood 
and stable blood sugar is very closely connected. I laugh and joke with people that like we talk a lot about hanger, but I know it's true for my own marriage. Like when I've had a snack, I'm a way better spouse. <laughs> and if you have toddlers or teenagers. Right, right. I'm snacks. way more regulated. And so there, this again could be a whole other topic. There's something called nutritional psychology, which I don't totally buy into entirely, where I, I do feel like it's a little bit stigmatizing whether unnecessary or not talking about how nutrition can really be closely intertwined with mental health. Um, but I do think that having access to enough food and blood carbohydrate in particular, which is often the most vilified nutrient and what is primarily responsible for stable blood sugar levels, I think is really essential for mental health. And I don't, I always, my caveat is that as a dietitian, I often think about the food piece primarily, and that's the obvious variable for me when I'm thinking about these cases of reported depression. But I don't feel comfortable saying that's all that's at play, but I am highly suspicious that if you're not eating enough, your mood is going to be severely impacted, whether it's depression, anxiety, whatever. Yeah. And and not just carbohydrates, but also healthy fats. I think like fat mm. and carbs are vilified. And I immediately go to how important it is to make sure babies are getting DHA and AHA. And if we're depleting our adult brains of those things, it shows up in different ways too. Right. So I agree with you on the nutritional psychology. There's absolutely things that affect our brain health. And then I think sometimes it can go too far and into that self-blame cycle, which it, it's a careful careful line to to try to stay on the tightrope there so yeah and there's there like it's way more complicated and nuanced than we probably even have to get into but like there's neurotransmitters in serotonin and that's often found as it relates to carbohydrates and so we joke about like store-bought serotonin is fine and that's more than true but are you getting serotonin from your food too? Or are you vilifying carbs or have carbs been vilified for you is probably a better way to put it. All right. So let's talk about these FDA warnings that continue to pop up on their websites. There are several health concerns associated with this drug and the FDA has issued a boxed warning, which used to be called a black box warning due to potential harm. And I was shocked to see all of the ones that are included. And I pulled these directly from the FDA's website. There are also tons of articles out there. And Kathleen, you mentioned concerns related to hypoglycemia and the insulin-related causes specifically for people who are taking insulin. And like setting that aside, because I think that's not necessarily a, a problem with the medication. That's simply like people needing to work with medical practitioners to fully understand how these medications can or cannot work together. But I want to talk about some of the other warnings that are given things related to like thyroid tumors and thyroid cancer, gastrointestinal disorders. So this is where like we hear reports of people being hospitalized because they have paralyzation of the stomach or they're having hypersensitivity. And also I lost my gallbladder. So I know what that experience is like, a warning for acute gallbladder disease and potentially having to have your gallbladder removed. People are also experiencing and FDA has given a warning for fever, yellowing of the skin or eyes with jaundice, clay colored stools, 
which would tell me like there's something going on with how your body is absorbing nutrients and I, like that sounds scary to me and then hypersensitivity and serious allergic reactions such as anaphylaxis rash and more and then another not surprising but very sad warning for major birth defects and miscarriage and if someone were on this medication because they were trying to lose weight while pregnant, it just, that just breaks my heart that people feel that's a concern. And I know you are pregnant right now in this moment, so I'm sure that that tugs on your heartstrings too. But can you talk a little bit about some of these warnings? I'm like, why would we want to have a paralyzed stomach and no gallbladder and jaundice and clay-colored stools? Like, this, these things are not on the poster that I saw in my doctor's office this morning. Right. Right. I think it just speaks to the severity of anti-fat bias that people are experiencing that these are not deterrents, basically, I think is my thought that it's more indicative of the cultural zeitgeist right now and what it's like for someone in a larger body that the, they are willing to take on these potential complications. And I think a proponent of these medications would say that the risks of this are fairly insignificant. But I do think I also have to recognize that I don't speak with the people who are on these drugs and having a fabulous time. I don't speak with the people who are having really positive experiences and living their lives on these medications. I feel like I, mostly my population that I work with are people who have had challenging side effects or have suffered as a result of these medications. So I have to acknowledge my own bias is that I feel like I, I see more of the negative side effects, not thyroid cancer. I haven't seen that. But it's interesting to see that play out where the research says these side effects only happen in a small amount of the population. And in my world, it feels like they happen much more significantly. That makes sense. I appreciate your kind of openness and owning that bias and I think it's also important for people to hear that is happening because what they're seeing on social media of someone trying on smaller clothes or something doesn't also often encompass all of the other things that might be happening that aren't as fun right as it might seem I also think like there's no FDA warning for you will experience disordered eating and yeah. that is a huge side effect that is really normalized like if literally the way the medication works is by delaying digestion so that you eat less people can't find pleasure in food people can't eat dessert they can't tolerate more than a quarter of a cheeseburger or something like that and i think again we have to take the cultural pulse into consideration that's not really considered abnormal that's almost like a glorified thing like wow you you don't eat a certain way how do you do it and to me those are negative side effects that are not really being captured absolutely i totally agree and i think another thing that was interesting that isn't really captured when i was listening to the webinar dr larmy was talking about a lot of the studies and the purported claims are not supported in any of the scientific literature or research being done. So things like protecting the heart that we've mentioned earlier, which is something that is identified as outcome when taken as a medication for type 2 diabetes, because if you manage that, 
then you're reducing risk of stroke and heart disease and stuff like that. But we do not see that benefit for someone who already had regulated blood sugar taking this medication and experiencing weight loss. And they also went on to talk about PCOS and their concern that this medication is being suggested for people with PCOS. And then the concern there is that this medication works by mimicking hormones and creating essentially whack hormones in your body, right? Like it's tricking your body into thinking that it has hormones that aren't its own, which we know has this snowball effect on our sex hormones, ultimately could make PCOS worse was Dr. Larmy's assessment of long-term use or especially coming off of the medication. And I know you mentioned earlier pre-diabetes, which I didn't know, but Dr. Larmy talked about it was really only identified in the U.S. through the CDC. Is not even defined by the um, World Health Organization. And so they're a U.K. doctor, but they were like, we don't even have something called pre-diabetes. Yeah. yeah like, it's, oh, okay. <laughs> that would be an interesting topic for you to explore because <laughs> pre-diabetes, they're, again, there's curiosity as to whether the diagnosis of prediabetes is appropriate or whether it creates kind of fear and worry because not all of the cases that are identified. And I would suggest listeners, we'll make sure we put a link in the show notes, but Dr. Larmy is a medical professional who has diabetes. And so they do a lot of great education around that as well. So if it's something you're interested in, definitely check that out. But okay, so some of the other things that they said were not supported by science, improving fatty liver disease, and perhaps worst of all, and really my concern when I think about this medication, not even having a medical background, was insulin resistance. And so if we think about how in a person who does not have blood sugar dysregulation, to take a medication that is signaling to the pancreas to create more insulin and causing some confusion about their own hormonal processes, Dr. Larmy postulates, it says there's a large group of medical professionals who agree that one of the concerns and potential negative outcomes for the popularity of these drugs for weight loss is that it will cause insulin resistance. And that in 10 to 15 years, we'll see a huge spike in type 2 diabetes of users who used these injection drugs because they had a healthy pancreas, but then it stopped working properly and knowing what to do or trusting itself, however we want to phrase that, um, because of the medication and causing your hormones to skew, which like to me, that is when I was, before I had done all the research, what I was expecting to see as one of the concerns, that there would be an unattended consequence as a result of taking this medication. I'm wondering, like, Kathleen, what are your thoughts on some of that potential assessment, knowing what you know about how the body works? And you're not a, a diabetes expert. We're not asking for that. But just as someone who has more familiarity with how all this works in the body. I think I'm, I think it's a really interesting theory and I can see how they would come to that concern. I, I see it as a limitation of not having more research. Essentially, we don't know what will happen. And that's one of the things that I think can make people wary. 
that would be really upsetting if it has the unintended impact of actually creating more disease down the road. Yeah, and it's heartbreaking to think about. And in line with what we know weight cycling to do to the body, right? right? And so that's the other thing is like, okay, even if it doesn't have that consequence, all of the research is pointing to weight gain if you either come off this medication or five years down the line. And in that case, we can look at some of the negative health outcomes from weight cycling, i.e. adding or adding and removing multiple times 10% or so more of your body weight, which I sadly have done multiple times in my life. And you talked about muscle wasting, wasting. We've had multiple shows where we talk about this and put link in the show notes for more information. I'm not going to go into all of that now, but I think we would be remiss not to call out some of those severe negative health effects that, again, aren't included on that FDA warning box, right? Like talking about gut health, muscle ratio, oxidative stress, and reduced cellular health because if our cells aren't getting the nourishment that it needs, right? And also increasing cortisol, causing inflammation, which negatively affects hormones. And again, why Dr. Alarmi pointed out PCOS as a concern. And so to me, weight, knowing that weight cycling can do all of those things, including increased risk of insulin resistance, right? Causing a need for some of this medication. I always want to think about weight loss in terms of like, and what does that look like long-term? And so for me, when I am looking at this medication overall, I no longer have this like longing of, oh, I should do that or, oh, this would be good for me because I have to remind myself in five years from now, like I am going to be glad that I did not once again put myself in a weight cycle where I put my body under immense stress. And also back on this like orthorexic roller coaster and working with someone like you where I have disordered eating and I have body shame and I have all these things around the fact that my body was small again but now it's large again and what like all the feelings as well as the negative health outcomes from that I think that's really well said it's sad that it will be interesting to see how this all plays out because it's experimenting with the experiences that people have yeah well, I do always like to leave listeners with something positive and actionable that they can take to be of service to work on themselves. And I think it'd be good to not only hear some ideas from you on how to process all of the diet culture, weight loss propaganda people are seeing right now, but also if someone is making a decision to move forward with this, how to also process that. I think you've got some really great thoughts and how you're working with people on that to ultimately have the goal if not worsening long-term negative health outcomes but also to feel good in this moment whatever that is so I'm wondering like a what are your positive actual suggestions and b thoughts around how we can feel good about whatever decision we're doing moving forward I think it it can feel probably pretty dismal to see all the influencers and everyone doing an about face in terms of taking these drugs and losing weight and things like that. And if someone is feeling that way, I would suggest maybe trying to dial down that noise to the degree that they are able 
and maybe seek out some of these providers like we talked about Dr. Asher, Reagan Chastain, or Virgie Tovar, I think, just came out and said, I'm not selling what they're buying, basically. Like, you can be in my DMs all you want, but I'm not going to be doing that. So the more you can surround yourself with the voices that still definitely exist that are more rooted in body liberation rather than this, like, watered-down body positivity that kind of flips switch when you're least expecting it, I think that's been really helpful for people. And if a person does decide to make these changes too or take these medications, again, I hope you don't feel judged for doing so. And we can maybe other the cultural forces that have played a role in your decision making and view them for what they are. Super helpful. And as I said at the beginning, we'll have links in the show notes for listeners and you're bringing up things that I'm not even aware of and I'm looking forward to following and learning from and I always appreciate your voice and perspective Kathleen thank you so much for joining us and being willing to have this conversation I think if nothing else hopefully it's eye-opening from people who are sitting on the sidelines just curious what it's all about but just as like a Fun story aside, I thought it was fascinating. I went to get my nails done and the technician was like, oh, you look really great. Have you lost weight? And I was like, no. And also, this is what I always say to people who say that to me. <laughs> what if I had cancer? And you just congratulated me on that. And like her, her face of horror. And I'm like, listen, I'm telling you that not because I'm sick, but because this might happen one day. And it's important to not comment on people's bodies. And she was like, well, I just have gotten in the habit of saying it to everyone who comes in because everyone's on weight loss drugs and they want me to compliment how great. Right. Right. And my heart broke. Like, this is my town. This isn't like online or an influencer. Like this is. And that's when I was like, I've got to look into this. This is not just like, oh, a thing that's happening with celebrities. Like people are now bringing this into their everyday life. And it just, it broke my heart to think that like every single person that's sitting in her chair expects her to compliment their weight loss. Right. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting. Like it is jarring at this point when someone says, oh, you look good rather than it's so good to see you. Yes. And it's, it's interesting that she's feeling that pressure. Yeah. And I I adore her. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. I just um, try to educate everyone around that because I'm also like, I have people in my life who are very sick and who are losing weight and wish they weren't. And so I think that things can go both ways and we just need to be aware of not talking about other people's bodies. And then maybe we wouldn't be feeling like thyroid cancer is worse the risk of weight loss. Right. Right. Hey. Listeners, if you want to enjoy more of Kathleen, you can check out KathleenMeehanRD.com or on Instagram at the RD Nutritionist and TikTok KathleenMRDN. Most of my listeners are not on TikTok because we're old like me. So I love following you on Instagram, though. I know they will, too. You can always sure find links in your bio to all the things or links on your website to all your socials and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you do work with clients if people want to have your services. Is there anything else that we didn't cover or that you want to say before we sign off? No, I'm very thankful to be here. Thanks for having me. And everybody deserves to eat. Yes. And everybody deserves to feel safe in their bodies, whatever that looks like. So like you said, if someone 
feels like this is a tool that they need to feel safe in their body. Just make an informed choice. And it's not a choice I would make, but I also want others to feel like they have the autonomy to do what is right for them. So hopefully this has been an educational tool without judgment or shame. Although I'm sure there are bits of that coming through just because I am biased as much as you are biased in negativity. <laughs> I am also biased as to how harmful losing weight has been over my life. But everybody's journey is their own. And listeners, we thank you so much for your willingness to be open to growth and to be here today to listen and learn and unlearn and to choose to become a better version of yourself for yourself. Thank you, Kathleen. And we'll be back again on Friday with a regular show for you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.